Isn't it good to sing? There is one gospel on which I stand. Love to, yeah, love singing a new song about Jesus, hey? Um, hey, we are in our third week now of our core series, looking at the, the things that are most core to our church, the core DNA of our church, the things that define us, uh, the things that we would hope uh, define us more than anything else. Four things uh, that we want to, yeah, to define us, four things we want to just like ooze out of everything we do here as a church. Uh, four drums we're going to bang until Jesus comes back and tells us to put the sticks down, or we die, whichever one comes first, right? Um, these are the four things that we are going to continue to be on about. And so the first week in the series, we talked about what it means to be gospel-centered. We want to be a gospel-centered church. We want uh, everything to revolve around the good news that Jesus is who he is, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus died for our sin, and that Jesus is coming back to get us. Right? The good news of the gospel. Good news of the gospel. He died in our place for our sin. And so as a church and as Christians, individuals, we never want to kind of fall into the trap of becoming me-centered people. We always want to be centered in on Christ. We don't want to kind of do the spiritual navel-gazing thing where we just kind of, you know, have our heads down and just self-absorbed with ourselves and our own kind of plans and dreams and ambitions and we forget what Jesus is trying to do in us. Right? We want to stay gospel-centered. We want to revolve around what is most important. And then last week, we talked about what it means to be gospel-centered disciples, gospel-centered disciples of Jesus, which means that we are inside and out defined by the grace we have received from Jesus, personally. The personal grace he has extended us for our sin when we come face-to-face with who we really are and we discover the depths of his grace for us, we are transformed by his gospel, and that's what it means to be gospel-centered disciples. Which brings us today to uh, week three, community. What does it mean to be a gospel-centered community? Great news on this one. We spent basically all of term four last year in Romans 12, which is a chapter of the Bible dedicated to teaching what it means to be a gospel-centered community. And so, hey, we've got some wonderful um, resources to draw on there, a wonderful picture of of what a church shaped by grace looks like. Uh, And so, yeah, a ton of stuff there if you want to find that on our website, if you want to kind of keep digging into that. Uh, we put all of our messages up on our website and on our podcast and on YouTube. So there's lots of different places you can find it. Good stuff there. Let's pray before we jump into today's. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word today, I pray uh, the simple prayer. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. We pray this in faith in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Gospel-centered community. What are we talking about when we say gospel-centered community? Um, Really, gospel-centered community is, just to give it to you up front again, like like I've done every week, gospel-centered community is one which allows the gospel of Jesus Christ to create a culture of life, love, gentleness, grace, the character of Jesus becomes the character of the church. Uh, that's what it means to be a gospel-centered church. Um, God, in all of his infinite wisdom, the God who could do anything and everything, the God who is limited by nothing, has decided that the ultimate culmination of his creation that he has made in this world, the ultimate creation, the whole point of what he has do- done in, in creating the world, is the forming of a new community, a new people, 
a new family with many brothers and sisters, with one father. A new humanity, really, patterned after the new Adam, Jesus. In Romans 5, we're taught that Jesus is a new Adam, a new kind of man, and he's building a new kind of humanity after him. Gospel-centered disciples, Jesus is the new Adam. We simply call it the church. And by that, we don't mean the building. I mean the people, the family of God, the body of Christ. This new community is the telos of the gospel. It's the point. It's the goal. It's the aim. It's, it's where it's all headed towards. It is the destination of everything Christ is doing. Uh, we see this in, in Titus too. We see it really clearly. He says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. That phrase, a people for his own possession, you're going to find everywhere in the Bible once you start looking. If you highlighted it every time you saw it, it would be on every second page. A people for his own possession, eager to do good works. You see, the Bible teaches us that Jesus did not just bring us into relationship with him, not just relationship with the Father through the Son, but he also brought us into relationship with his family. We're not just saved from our sin, we are also saved then into the church, into a family, into a new community. And so yes, your faith is personal, but friends, your your faith is not private, cannot be private. It cannot remain private and remain Christian in nature, or biblical in nature, right? Which makes belonging to the people of God for the Christian not an optional extra part of Christian life, it is essential, core. It's core. That's why it's week three. To say it another way, to receive God as your father, you are also to receive his other kids as your newly blood-bought siblings, brothers and sisters. The dinner table of God is filled with other Adopted orphans. And the father is very concerned with how it is we interact with one another. He is very concerned with our love for one another, our unity with one another, our forgiveness of one another. So this is what it means to belong to a gospel-centered community. In the last few years... I found myself kind of learning this lesson in a slightly new way. Um, I've long been convinced from the Bible that this is our calling as Christians, that the Lord is calling us into a family, a new kind of humanity, a new community, uh, and that's central to our faith, not just a private faith, but a, not just a personal faith, sorry, but a, a, communi- a communal faith. But now I've learned this lesson in a new way because I'm now a dad. And I think in the Lord's providence, he teaches us some things through fatherhood, through motherhood. Um, but maybe harder to learn otherwise. I love my girls individually with all my heart. I love my Lucy with her bright eyes and her wonder as she interacts with the world with more understanding and more insight into what's going on. I love watching her grow up in that way. And I love my little Violet and her passion (laughs) and her creativity and the way she surprises me. She is an enigma. I can't figure her out. Um, in the best kind of way, right? She's just her own person. And I love that about her. And yet, there is a unique joy in my heart as, her, as their dad 
when I get to watch not just them interacting with me, but one another. A new kind of love for them wells up in me as I watch that play out. I love my cuddles with them both, but I actually enjoy more watching them be affectionate with one another. I love it when they're kind-hearted to me, but man, I love it so much when they are selfless to one another, when they are kind, when they don't have to be to one another, when they're affectionate, and when they are yeah, selfless to one another. And watching that, something's kind of, I feel like a little penny has dropped in my head, from my head to my heart maybe, right? Something I'd long known from God's word, I now know in a new way. Friends, the Lord delights in our adoration of him. He loves us, and he loves that we come to him with our hands open, ready to receive from him. He loves that. But he delights in an altogether different way. When he uses us to love one another, when he witnesses our love expressed to one another, it's a different kind of love that he gets to enjoy. This is what we read in 1 John 4. Uh, from 19, he says this. He says, we love because he first loved us. It's a great summary of what it means to be a gospel-centered community. We love because he loved us, right? If anyone says, hear this warning, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. If you hate your brother in front of you, you can't love God. Simple as that. And so this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Friends, Jesus makes our love for one another a non-negotiable part of our following him. Non-negotiable. John is saying, if you don't, you don't know God. You haven't met him yet if there is still hate in our heart for one another. And so when we talk about a gospel-centered community, what we're doing is we're making this connection. We're drawing the dots between this and this. We're saying, we love because he first loved us. That's the heartbeat of a gospel-centered community. And so in this church, we want to let all that Jesus is, all that he is, and all that he has done, shape us, mold us, drive us, propel us as a community in profound ways. We want to, so to speak, take the, take the sheet music that he has given us in the Word and pray for the Holy Spirit to help us play it in such a way that it is recognizable as the thing of beauty that it is. And so today we're going to be in the book of Revelation. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can flick open to the last few pages of your Bible, Revelation 19, so maybe even like the second last page of your Bible. Um, and here are my two points today, nice and easy. Jesus gives himself fully to his church, and he calls us to love in the same way. We love because he first loved us. Now, Revelation is the last book in your Bible. It is uh, written by the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John and the, and the Epistles of John as well. Um, and it's a series of heavenly visions that John is given. And we're going to zero in now on one of these visions, one of these heavenly visions, and we're going to see uh, the vision of the future. Like the culmination of all of history. This is where we're heading. This is where everything is going. This is where God's plans for the world find their fulfillment. Here we go. Verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, 
Do you know who the multitude is? It's the church. Multitude. Not a few. Multitude. Sorry, introverts. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's what we just read. History is headed towards a wedding banquet. Who's getting married? We read here, the lamb, that is Jesus, right? He is the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is one of his titles in the word. And his bride, the church. The church is the bride. Guys, I don't know if you knew this about Jesus. He's engaged. Did you know that? He's off the market officially. He's engaged. This is why in his parables, he's constantly referring to himself as the groom, right? Jesus has chosen his bride. He has put a ring on her finger. They have set a date. The invitations are in the mail. Jesus is getting married. The day's coming. Friends, Jesus is not just our king. He's not just our savior. He's not just our friend. He's not just our teacher. He is our betrothed. He has come already once to die for her, to pay the dowry, if you will. And he's coming back again to take her by the hand and marry her. Jesus is getting married. And this, so the story that we find ourselves in, in this world, is actually a, something of a romance story. The Bible begins with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. Ephesians 5 is going to do some dot drawing for us. This is what we see in Ephesians 5. Uh, he starts by, he quotes Genesis here. He says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then watch this. He says, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to the church, uh, to Christ and the church. So he's, he's talking about marriage, a man and a woman. So this is profound because I'm talking about the church and Christ. Going back to the start, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Remember that in Revelation? What's the church look like? She's clothed in garments. She's beautiful. She's spotless. He might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So in Revelation 19, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing this day, right? The, the marriage of the Lamb and His bride. If you're married, you might remember your own wedding day. I remember my wedding day a little bit because my memory is shocking. Um, but yeah, May 8th, 2011. I've got a photo there. Oh, there she is. Oh. Um, 
12 years soon, right? Pretty exciting, 13, 12, 12. I am a classically indecisive person, and there's only like two decisions I ever made in my life where I was a thousand percent sure, and marrying her was one. I don't remember uh, what the other one was, but it was also pretty good. Um, <laughs> Ephesians 5 has just told me that that day, like that one there, my wedding day, in all of its glory, in all of its significance to me and Larissa and our family, it's just a taste of what's to come. It's a signpost pointing towards a bigger, better, the, the real marriage, the true marriage, the marriage of the bride to his lamb. And so make no mistakes, friends, Jesus, he loves his bride. He's committed to his bride. He's given his life for his bride. He loves her. He cherishes her. He has chosen her, and he's coming back to marry her. He loves his bride, even though she's unlovely so often. <laughs> and by faith, we can be included in that marriage day. What did Revelation finish by saying? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are going to be there. Friends, by faith, that's us. We get to be there by faith. So, Jesus loves his bride. He's given himself for her. We're called into this kind of community where we live out gospel grace among ourselves. We do find ourselves faced with a few problems, though. How's that going for us? <laughs> um, we find ourselves... I'm going to just tackle one big problem we find today. We have some culturally conditioned barriers that we need to work through if we're going to embrace what God has for us as a church. Okay? Have you, have you ever had that experience where you kind of look back on the Christians of the past and go, how could they have got it so wrong? Like obvious things to us. Um, you think obviously of like, you know, the slave-owning Christians in the States and the, the, the pro-Nazi kind of German church members. And you're like, how could you have got it so wrong? Profess what you believe and then live out your, uh, defend such evil things. It's important to remember we have cultural blind spots too. We are culturally located like they were, right? They had their world that they existed in. We have our own world that we exist in. And we have some massive things too that we need to face up to. There's one particular one that I think is so natural to us, so, so kind of native to us, that trying to describe it is like trying to describe water to a fish. It's like, what do you mean water, right? This is just what we live in. This is just how the world is. And we can't see that we're actually weird when it comes to this stuff. And the one that I think of the most is our culture of radical individualism. You know, guys, most people through history, in most places through the history of humanity, have understood themselves primarily as part of a family unit, part of a community, part of a, a tribe, right? We're, we're the first ones removed from that, I think. And so therefore, for them, the, the Bible's teaching about you know, the church being about us, not about me, makes perfect sense to most cultures. And to us, it's like, yeah, but as long as I get all my freedom too. <laughs> from a range of factors from like technology shrinking the world, it's like all the way back in the Enlightenment and the thinking that came out of that and rationalism and all these things have led to like the dissolving of our identity markers as a community, as individuals, how we understand ourselves as people. And so instead of looking to our family and kind of our 
broader kind of community, we now look inside. What's, what's in me? What's true for me? And living out those desires. And of course, the result of that, as we all know, is chronic isolation and loneliness. We all know that's like suicide rants are up through the roof for the young people. Why? Because they're isolated. That's just a symptom. One of the flow-on effects of our radical individualistic thinking, cultural thinking, is we have a deeply ingrained consumer mentality. I love that image because it paints a picture, doesn't it? We have a radical consumer mentality. And so when we bring this kind of me-centered thinking into the church, this kind of consumer mentality, what can I get from this thing? We bring with us a anti-gospel bomb <laughs> ticking, waiting to go off. Anti-gospel bomb waiting to explode. Uh, this is what um, one writer, Mark Sayers, said in his book, Reappearing Church about this kind of consumer mentality that's infected the church. He says, many of us balk at the forms of cultural Christianity that mix nationalism or ethnic identity with faith, right? We, we see that and we go, yeah, that's, that's wrong. That's obviously wrong to us when we see that happening. And yet we miss how we've been shaped by our own dominant culture, the culture of consumerism. Consumer culture is placeless yet pervasive. It is the water in which we swim. Hey, you stole that from me. Consumer Christianity is a form of cultural Christianity that compromises the cross with self rather than flag. Did you get that? It's a form of Christianity that compromises the cross with me, myself, rather than kind of a, a nation or an ethnic group. Mixing the worship of God with the worship of options. Personal autonomy, low commitment, and opinion over responsibility. Consumer culture creates in us a mentality of toxic entitlement. The sense that we can have it all, but without struggle or cost. When all the privileges, none of the responsibility, right? No cost, no struggle. This mentality of entitlement eventually will infect our faith. Of course it has. The Christian court in consumer Christianity shifts blame for the lack of growth to God to their leaders, to the church, their friends, spouse, or family, insulating themselves from renewal. We fool ourselves that someone else will solve the problem of our lack of discipleship. It's someone else's problem that I'm not following Jesus as I should. It's the church's fault. It's someone else's fault, right? Is this not the 21st century Western church to a T. Today, seriously, if you don't like the music at this church, there is another church within a couple of minutes drive with a big production and much better music. Guarantee it, right? Our music team is awesome, but you can't compete with some of these productions, right? If you don't like the coffee here, there'll be a church with better coffee. Guarantee it. Uh, I'm 100% I'm sure there'll be a church with a working aircon uh, within walking distance of this church. Uh, during the past on the way, We've got the techie out. They're just taking time to get in. But yes, we've got one working aircon in here. Cool. Right? You can literally shop for a church. Isn't that concept horrific? Shop for a church. Choose the one that works best for me, like we choose a toaster. Let me read it again. Consumer Christianity is a form of cultural Christianity that compromises the cross 
with self. Mixing the worship of God with the worship of options, personal autonomy, low commitment, and opinion over responsibility. To say it again, this is not just a problem, this is an anti-gospel frame of mind. Anti-gospel. This will hinder the work of God in a church. So this church, so everyone knows, we don't exist to cater to the, uh, to the church shoppers. We exist to glorify God. That's what we're about. That's what we want to set our eyes on. We don't want to give in to this kind of cultural consumer Christianity thing that exists. And we understand that the, our relationship with the church is not primarily about what we can get out of it, but how we can serve Jesus in one another, our responsibility towards it. And so, Anagra, as we think this through together, can we just all receive that warning? If we bring consumer mentality into the church, which Jesus calls his beloved bride, we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of Jesus in that equation. I'm sure you know this, but you want to know a surefire way to provoke ire in a man? It's to insult his bride, treat her with that respect, treat her with contempt, treat her as a means to, the, to an end. You treat the bride of Christ that way. Can you not imagine that Jesus would be unhappy with that kind of thinking? Friends, one of the, way, one of the ways we honor our Lord Jesus is by loving serving, honoring, and speaking well of his bride. So let's all recognize today, right, that we need God's grace here to kind of deprogram us from our cultural assumptions that we bring in the door and, Lord, replace that with your vision. We need him to do that. And so let's together, let's say a hard no to consumer mentalities consumer mentalities that sees the church as something to serve me and not the other way around. Why? Because Jesus loves his bride. He's given himself to his bride. He's called us to love his bride as well. And so we're just going to finish our time today in Hebrews 10. Where do you turn in the Bible to quickly summarize how it is we love? We could go anywhere in the Bible, really. We're just going to go to these two verses in Hebrews 10. We're going to see some very specific ways that he's called us to live out gospel-centered community together. How we can love his bride for his sake. This is what we read. Hebrews 10. The author says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Three phrases I want to pull out for us by way of application. It speaks for itself, really. The first one, consider how to stir up, not neglecting to meet and encouraging one another. First one, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. The first thing we're actually told to do here is consider. Before we do the stirring, we do the considering. So we're asking ourselves a question, how it is that we might actively, we're recommended to think about this, right? Consider, put active thought, intentional thought into how it is we might stir, what it is we can do to stir others. I love the, uh, the CSB translation. I am using the CSB in my own personal devotional time. I'm really enjoying it. It translates this a bit more aggressively in a good way. 
CSB says this, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. Not just stirring up kindly, provoking. Did any of you grow up with a, uh, a sibling who made it their life's goal to provoke you? Every opportunity, provoke, provoke, provoke. Anyone in this room was that sibling, maybe? The Lord have mercy on your soul. Um, to provoke someone is to try draw a reaction out, isn't it? That's what we're watching when the little brother's provoking the big brother. Provoke, provoke, provoke. Try and draw a reaction out. In Hebrews, he was calling us to do that in a positive way. We are to try and provoke one another. Call one another up. Stir one another up to these love and good deeds. I think that's pretty cool. I love that calling. We have to consider how to kind of draw out of each other kindness and draw out of each other compassion and draw out of each other generosity. Draw these things out of one another. Right now, as I'm preaching, I am trying to provoke you, as I always am. I'm trying to poke you. Come on. Try to stir you up to love and good deeds. Firstly, that's how what we are to do together. We are to consider, think through intentionally how we could do that. That's, our, that's one of our, uh, our first calling here. Secondly, provoke one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. This, this is assuming that it is easy to neglect it. Let's be honest, that's true. It is easy to neglect, and he's writing to a church to say, hey, don't neglect the gathering. Don't neglect the coming together. Don't neglect the Sunday gathering in specific, specifically, but also the small group gathering. Don't neglect coming together to open the word, to pray, to encourage one another. Life, I think I've got to the age where I know for certain life will always be really busy. And it's not just a busy patch. That's called life. Life is now the busy patch. Uh, I think you'll relate to that. Um, and so, yes, we're always going to have kids have sports and dances and there's always going to be the family lunch and there's always going to be stuff, always going to be things happening. And God's saying, don't neglect what's most important. Don't let your priorities get out of whack. Don't let the small things override the big things. Make sure you don't neglect coming together. There are always going to be pools on your time. And so I kind of acknowledge the irony of me saying this while you're all here on a Sunday, which is great. Um, and so you're like, yeah, pat yourself on the back. No. Um, send that podcast to your friends. No. Um, that's passive-aggressive and probably not very helpful. Um, don't neglect it. Don't, let's hear that reminder again as a church, everyone. Don't neglect the gathering. Don't neglect it. That's how, we, that's how we do the one another's. That's how we love one another. That's how we serve one another. That's how we do it. We can't do it if we're not together. So we're not, not, not going to neglect it. Finally, what are we to do instead of neglecting? Encourage one another. All the more, as you see, the day, capital D, the day drawing near. We gather to provoke, to stir up, and to encourage. So don't neglect that. Why? Because there is a day coming. What is the day? It's the wedding day. The wedding day is coming. Don't forget the wedding day is coming. Our groom is waiting for us on the other side of this life. There's a day coming, friends, where we're going to stand. We're going to be part of that multitude that sounds like the roaring ocean, declaring how good he is. Uh, Spurgeon has some pretty beautiful words to say about this, so I'm going to defer to Spurgeon, uh, and then we'll move into a time of communion. Spurgeon reflecting on the goodness of that day that's coming, the wedding day, the joy of joys, 
The joy of joys will be the delight of Christ in his perfectly gathered church. There is joy in heaven in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. But when all these repenting sinners are gathered together in one perfected body and married to the Lamb, what will be the infinite gladness? Heaven has always been heaven. Heaven is always heaven and unspeakably full of blessedness. But even heaven has its holidays. Even bliss has its overflowing. And on that day when the springtide of the ocean, infinite ocean of joy, shall have come, what a measureless flood of delight shall overflow the souls of those glorified spirits as they perceive that the consummation of love's grand design has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. We do not yet know, beloved, of what happiness we are capable. I love that last line, isn't that good? We don't even know what we're capable, the happiness we're capable of feeling on that day. We have no idea. We can't even comprehend it. Friends, Jesus is getting married. He's going to be marrying us. Praise God for that. We're going to move into a time of communion now as we set our eyes together on that day that's coming. Um, if you're joining us today and you're visiting and you're a follower of Jesus and you love the Lord and you're good standing uh, with, with your church, you're welcome to come and, and join with us for communion today. Uh, if you're visiting and you're not sure we are with the Lord, I would ask you to abstain because the Bible gives us some warnings about not entering into communion without that profession of faith to follow Jesus. And so we're so glad you're here. Um, welcome. Good to have you. But yeah, I'd ask that you would honor the Lord Jesus. Request the. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, I have received, I received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This act of worship we're about to do together, it was never meant to be just a me and Jesus kind of thing. This is a bride of Christ moment. This is one of the ways we witness to one another that we still need his grace, that we want to follow him, that we want to go to him and worship him, that we need his blood to once again cover our sins, that we need his body to be the bread of life for us. It's a way we witness to one another. We're still leaning in to grace. We still need him to rescue us. It's one way we display our unity as a body. It's one way we encourage one another. It's one way we stir up good deeds in one another. When we have to watch someone take communion and receive fresh grace from Jesus. It's encouraging. And so the elements are down here. I've done it like this on purpose. During the next song, what we're going to do, instead of the band jumping up, we're just going to play a song over the thing just to give us some time to come and take the elements. So I invite you to come take a cup and the bread.
Um, and I've done it like this so we can see each other. Get up out of our seats and go pick up what we need from Jesus today in this way. And so that's how we're going to do it in this next song. When, you, when you're ready, you can make your way down the front and take of the elements. Um, and during the singing, can I just say, like in the next, for the rest of the service, can we just be hyper aware of one another? I know sometimes we're like, when you're communion, it's like this, and you're trying to like block everything out. Can we do the opposite today? <laughs> can we be hyper aware of the fact that we're the bride of Christ together? As we're singing these songs, as Jane and the team lead us in worship in a moment, as we sing these songs, look around, hear the voices, sing extra loud so that other people can hear your voice and be encouraged by you. Stir up love and good deeds through your voices today. Uh, what I'll ask you to do is, is feel free to take the bread in your own time as you worship the Lord. Hold onto the cup, and at the end of the song, I'll jump up, I'll pray, and we'll drink together. So I'm going to give the wink to the team now, and um, 